the museum thing, I've went to plenty of museums in New York, done a lot of historical ones, and then went to one abstract museum. We were walking around and there was a glove on the ground and everyone was walking around it like it was a piece of art, but it was just a kid's glove that was (laughs) lost. And that's where I was like, I don't think abstracts for me. This was too much. everybody, and welcome back to The Human Element, Kara's podcast focused on finding ways to inject humanity and insight into modern marketing. I'm excited to welcome Richard Sean, author of The Choice Factory, focused on applying behavioral science to advertising, and Sean Healy, Global Chief Strategy Officer at Kara, to discuss media decarbonization, bringing Densu's programs from theory to practice, and the consumer behavior changes that are influencing the work. Thank you both for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Chelsea. We'll start with a, an easier one before we really start diving into behavioral science. Can you tell us a bit about your roles and how they have evolved? My role is quite a, a specialist one. So essentially, I take findings from behavioral science and apply them to marketing. So that's all kind of areas of marketing, whether it's pricing, messaging, media, but it's always this lens of what do we know from the study of behavioral science and how can then that be practically applied in, in marketing? I was uh, lucky enough to work with Richard in a kind of prior job where we were uh, in global and UK respective roles at another agency and have taken inspiration from his stuff. My current role is, as you said, Chelsea, CSO for Cara Global. I'm also fortunate enough to have a practice role for strategy across our media agencies as a whole. And the work that we're doing in this area is a, a big collaborative effort with iPro and DX as well. So it's getting the best of the entire group focused on this topic. Let's start from the top. What is behavioral economics? So behavioral economics or behavioral science is nothing complicated. It's essentially what people used to call social psychology. So it's the study of how people actually behave rather than how they claim to behave. Uh, And if there's a broad idea, it's that consumers have too many decisions to make every single day. So they don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to weigh up those decisions in a fully considered way. And instead, they rely on shortcuts to make decisions in a fast, speedy way. Now, what's of interest to us as marketers is those shortcuts are prone to biases. And essentially, if you're aware of the bias, well, then you can frame your communication, design your product, schedule your media in a way that takes advantage of those biases rather than tries to work against them. We spend a lot of time now looking for behavioural data. And as the media landscape is digitised, that's what we've sort of increasingly focused on. But I think we've lost sight of the opportunities to, you know, think about social psychology or the way kind of people actually behave alongside that. So I think, you know, that's what we're trying to do here and specifically to kind of channel that kind of thinking towards what is one of mankind's most important uh, pressing issues kind of right now in sustainability. So, Sean, you kind of teed up the next question for Richard's response. But, Richard, what inspired you to begin your work around behavioral science in the first place? There was a very specific moment when I became interested in behavioral science. When I was working at an agency where the government was a client, one of the accounts I worked on was the Give Blood account. So government tries to go out and persuade people through altruism to donate blood. During the annual planning back in about 2004, 
I happened to read a study by two American psychologists called Latine and Darling. So it features right at the back of the, of the book, The Tipping Point by Gladwell. And the experiments that Gladwell talks about by Latine and Darling were all around an idea called the bystander effect, which is essentially if you ask lots of people for help, you get a diffusion of responsibility. Essentially, everyone leaves it up to someone else to behave uh, in, a, in a positive manner. So having read about that, I thought, well, wait a minute, this is exactly the problem we face when we're trying to get people to donate blood. We go out and ask the entire country to help. So most people think, well, why should I go through the pain and hassle of donating blood when I can leave it up to my neighbour? Having read the study, went and spoke to the creative agency and said, well, one way around this is to try and create a sense of personal responsibility. You know, uh, so very, very simple tweak to the creative. Rather than saying, blood stocks are low in England, please donate, just try to boost that sense of responsibility geographically by saying, blood stocks are low in Birmingham or London, please donate. And even that tiny, tiny change had a significant impact, sort of 10 or 15% improvement in, in response rates. And that experience got me, got me hooked. And realising that, yes, there was this one really useful study for the blood service, but there were also thousands upon thousands of others that could be applied in commercial situations. So over the last 15 years or so, I've become increasingly interested and eventually moved my job so it became my um, entire kind of uh, work life. And it's essentially trying to match existing academic research to the marketing problem at hand. And if there isn't a study well, you know, then going out and running one to try and bridge that gap. And in your book, The Choice Factory, there are 25 biases that influence how people perceive things and how marketers can influence them, right? Yes, although, I mean, I should say, there are more biases than that. There are hundreds of these things, but I picked in that book 25 that I thought were most relevant, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for our audience today, are there like maybe a few that you might want to mention just to give a little inkling to the book and what that really entails? I think you shouldn't really have favourite biases, but I, I do have a favourite bias, which is this amazing idea called the, the pratfall effect. So that's one that I think can be, can be used. So the study originally was by Elliot Aronson back in 1966. And in his study, he recruits a colleague, gets that colleague to take part in a quiz. The guy is given all the answers. So he does amazingly well, gets 92% of the questions right, wins the quiz by miles, looks like a genius. But then at the end of the show, he makes a pratfall, like a small blunder. He spills a cup of coffee down himself. Now, Aronson has recorded this entire incident and he plays it to listeners. But the twist in the experiment is sometimes he plays the entire incident. So great quiz performance and spillage. Other times he just plays the great performance. He edits out the spillage. What Aronson then does is recruit another group of people to listen to the recording and feedback on how much they like the contestant. And his key finding is people, like we're talking about the order of about 40%, they significantly like the contestant more if they have heard the spillage as well as the great performance. So Aronson calls this the pratfall effect, essentially the idea that we prefer people or products who exhibit a flaw. So that's an old study, nearly 60 years old, interesting insight. But then you can see that being applied by some of the greatest advertising. Now, if you think about back in 1959, VW, ugly is only skin deep. You know, flaws are at the heart of their campaign. Uh, Guinness, good thing come to those who wait. Admitting slowness is at the heart of their campaign. You know, these 
applications of the practical effects are at the heart of some of the greatest campaigns because I think they boost that appeal. They prove believability and honesty, so other claims become more potent. And frankly, they grab people's attention because most advertisers don't know about behavioural science. They don't apply these ideas. So I love the Prattfall effect, both from its really innovative way of experimenting on it all the way through to the very practical ways brands have, have applied it in their creative. I think, Richard, favourite biases might be the title of this podcast now. Um, I think <laughs> yeah. we all have a few, especially off of this list that I was reading. Also, can you explain the EAST model? So one issue with behavioural science is it's been around for 130 years. So it makes for what could seem like a confusing volume of information. You've got so many studies, where do you start? If you want to have behavioural science as a tool that you're using every single day, you need to simplify it. And that the best way to simplify behavioural science is to use a framework. So there are lots of different frameworks out there. Cialdini's got his six points of influence. Uh, there's things like Mindspace, BJ Fogg's model. But the model that I think is probably most useful is the EAST framework, because it's very flexible, very simple. So it was created back in 2014 by the Behavioural Insights team. Uh, they were an organisation set up by the British government to make sure their communications were informed by behavioural science. And one of the best things that team did was distill these thousands of studies into four key principles. So EAST is an acronym, and it stands for make it easy, make it attractive, make it social, and make it timely. And these are the four key principles of, of behavioural science. So, Sean, how did you start beginning to think about this behavioral economics work and science work uh, in the context of sustainability and decarbonization? So that is a critical priority for Dentsu as a whole. But really, how did you hone in on this work? You know, we're doing masses of kind of work in this area in something that we're trying to make end to end. We're working with media carbon calculators now that we have up and running in a bunch of markets and are starting to run calculation tests with with a number of clients. And, you know, ultimately it's going to be part of clients' obligations to, and ours, I should say, also importantly, to figure out how they understand the carbon emissions associated with marketing and then start to mitigate and reduce them. We're also doing some really interesting work with media vendors and technology. So, you know, new, more carbon-friendly ways of streaming rather than ad-serving other partners, for instance, who we're working with to build kind of custom algorithms to prioritise kind of lower carbon impacts. So there's a lot of really good stuff going on in that in that area. And then also big projects that we're, we're working on to take that carbon data and connect it into our planning tools. So during 2023, we'll get to a position where we're able to, if you like, balance a media budget a carbon budget, and also a brand's goals for growth. Media carbon is only, you know, one of the things that the world's going to be dealing with and is dealing with right now. And obviously people's behaviour, you know, the the choices that they make in terms of what they buy and then how they use and dispose of it is really the, the sort of big opportunity. And so we're very, very conscious of the need to equip our guys with a strategic language and techniques you know, we were thinking about the intent to behaviour gap that Richard was alluding to at the kind of top of the podcast and thoughts really turned to, you know, behavioural science, behavioural economics as a way to give clients and our teams concrete techniques to deal with that. 
And I'd been lucky enough to work with Richard in, in the past and so was able to kind of call him up and, and get him involved in a project which is essentially framed around making these techniques accessible to people, take, distilling down some of the amazing canon of work experimental in nature and, and making it hopefully super practical for our teams. We know as a as a world and industry that sustainability and decarbonization is a priority and important, whether that comes from B2B to also B2C. So I think that what you're saying is how does that activate for campaigns to consumers and how do we make yeah. a stronger impact on the day-to-day, I think is still critical work that still needs to be continued out in order to actually see that impact because we're hearing the talk quite a bit across the industry, but how does that really action itself in day-to-day campaigns? We're at the point now where we're talking actively to kind of clients and have been doing, you know, in UK and US about standing up tests to figure out how we can use media carbon more efficiently. Sometimes the enormity, the challenge kind of puts people off. You know, there are techniques like the ostrich effect, I think, that might kind of apply here. And what we're trying to do in our own ways to make chipping away at some of those big challenges accessible by saying to people, here is a toolkit, here is a way of working. And really importantly, and you know, Richard can probably kind of pick this up, this is something which is experimental. So I guess the whole point of behavioral science is it's based on experiments. And what we're trying to bring is that spirit of experimentation into our world to figure out whether or not reframing a message or reframing a sequence of experiences can promote positive action. I mean, the way that our colleagues in uh, iPro would describe it as rapid prototyping of behaviour change activities. Well, one of the things I love about behavioural science is there are lots of these ideas, but nothing is ever argued from logic alone. So even if you're a Nobel Prize winner like Daniel Kahneman or Richard Thaler, just because they argue something, that's not enough. Everything has to be proved experimentally. So it does give a very solid foundation to the ideas in the behavioural science because they've all been proved in peer-reviewed, observed experiments. And, And what's good about some of these is firstly that, I think, ethos. But then the other great thing when combined with experimentation is the fact that sometimes the suggestions from behavioural science are, are quite counterintuitive. So I don't think people would think of experimenting in these areas unless they'd heard about the bias. So, for example, there's um, an NYU psychologist called Adam Alter, and he came up with an idea called Nine Enders. And essentially it's the idea that people make really big changes to their lives when their age ends in nine. Now, that sounds a bit dubious, but he looked at three different data sets to test this idea. An American website called Athlinks, where people register their running times, and he saw that runners who were doing the marathon for the first time were 48% more likely to be nine-enders than other ages. He looked at an affairs website, Ashley Madison, and men, and he looked, there were 8 million users of this site, men were 18% more likely to join the site when their age ends in nine. And he looked even more depressingly, at suicide data and saw a small but statistically significant uplift in suicides when people's agents in nine. So his argument is that it's nothing magic about the age nine. It's just the fact that our culture arbitrarily says the turn of a decade is super important. So as you approach this landmark moment, you begin to think about your life. And it's that act of reflection that often breaks the autopilot response, and it means you at least consider other ways of behaving. So you've got Adam Alter, through experimentation, proving this hypothesis he had. 
And then the interesting thing for agencies is, well, now you've got something to go out and test. If you are trying to get people to diet for the first time, drink non-alcoholic beers, you know, make, stop smoking, make big changes to their life, you could consider targeting them at 29, 39, 49, 59. You know, that would be a very simple application from a well-known experiment that I don't think anyone would consider doing unless they'd heard of Alter's research. Assuming that our experiments are kind of proved out, there's then a really big opportunity to talk to people, and particularly about you know sustainability and starting new good habits who are going through those kind of big changes. So new kid in the house, new home, moving cities, etc. It gives us a really interesting kind of framework to then say, can we land new habit-forming messages at these kind of pivotal points of change? There's almost like three areas of behavioural science. There's sometimes there's counterintuitive things they wouldn't think of, like nine-enders. Sometimes it's stuff that we know but maybe aren't persuading our clients to do because we don't have the evidence. The great thing is, let's say you know about social proof being an important driver of behaviour that we copy what other people do. Or if you had previously gone to a client and argued it through authority, it could just go back and forth. If you can take a peer-reviewed experiment from a completely neutral scientist, suddenly that weight of your argument becomes that much more powerful. And then the final strength of behavioural science, I think, is in the subtle nuances of biases we might know about. So people might know about the broad idea of social proof, but they might not know that there's been an experiment a few years ago which showed social proof is more powerful if someone is uncertain or they're scared. So it can... I think, sweat those extra few percent improvements, even in areas we know very well. Over the last decade or so, that opportunity to experiment and iterate quick has kind of increased the potential potency for behavioural science, because we know that if we wanted to, we could stand up 10 different tests. I mean, we can run fast digital surveys to see whether or not people seem to agree with the kind of proposition that we're kind of putting out that might change behaviour. Or we can put messages out relatively cheaply in an adaptive way to try and understand what's getting most traction, you know, equally from UX thinking. We can, you know, reframe the way people are landing on a website. I mean, this this kind of stuff is used by kind of conversion rate optimizers to a massive extent. And they may not call it behavioral science, but kind of literally the positions of where buttons and carts might be on a on a site can give us kind of clues about the way that people are, are going to respond to the messages that they receive there or the messages we've sort of driven them in with. So there's a really rich opportunity for us to kind of get a real test and iterate mentality into these questions. Yeah, it, it's a new way for brands to think about testing, right? We use that quite a bit yeah. of data and learning, but we don't think about it in the way of practice of behavioral science as much as we should. So I love this aspect. I have to ask, this world with political divide, war, pandemic, potential recession, I'm assuming you've both had conversations in the background, really how this work also impacts kind of the current climate we all live in and consumers live in today. I think we're always in a, in a state of change at this point. So how has that ramped up the work that you're kind of doing together? You know, you talked about political attitudinal polarization. I mean, pulling this back to how do we kind of get more people to make more sustainable choices, there's quite a lot of evidence, and uh, I'm sure Richard in a moment will be able to hit us with the, with, with the study, that, say, people with slightly different outlooks on 
politics and society, say more more traditional versus more progressive, if that's a way to frame it, will respond differently to calls to action around the environment. And, you know, there are experiments that show, you know, if you want to sell low energy light bulbs to groups with polarized opinions, there is a one group will kind of lean in with a kind of you know, call to action, which is around sustainability, another group might lean in with a call to action, which is about value for money. But as long as it kind of persuades people to make the right choice, this sort of leads us into thinking about the order in which we kind of frame messages in polarised economic circumstances and polarised economic circumstances. Sometimes it might be the right thing to do to promote the standard appeal of a product in the kind of headline and the sustainable benefits as the payoff and flip it for a different audience. The study you mentioned was, I think, by Gromit, which did pretty much exactly what you say. And what you see is across the political affiliation, when it's just framed as a matter of saving cash, left-wing, right-wing, Republican, Democrat, equally as likely to want to buy the low-energy, cost-efficient light bulb. Once you mention carbon, then suddenly politics comes in. Once you mention the low energy bulb also has a very low carbon footprint, suddenly amongst your kind of far left supporters, much, much more appealing. But amongst stronger Republicans, the light bulb becomes much less appealing. So I think, as you say, it's it's an interesting argument, which is if you want to get people to behave sustainably, you don't have to talk about the sustainable reason for behaving. And I think that nuance is an important one. If you what you really want is behaviour change, sometimes there is an oblique way to do it, which is more powerful. Just going back to your your question also, Chelsea, about, you know, I guess maybe you were alluding to the fact that during tough economic times, there might be people saying, let's just kind of concentrate on what we know, make sure we hit the numbers, it's going to be, it's, you know, we're in tough times, is this stuff a luxury? I think the fact that we can bring this kind of concrete experimental kind of approach can, you know, de-risk for people who are cautious doing the right thing. And I think within the kind of toolkit that we're building out, we can kind of start small and scale out. And this is a way for for us to kind of, you know, kind of keep the business going, but then figure out how we can scale new sustainable behaviours or support for the portfolio that might not be, you know, number one in terms of the, the kind of budget setting analysis, you know. So I think that in 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 unusual times, this is a kind of flexible mindset that can help us think our way around some kind of tricky looking problems. There's also an angle that uncertain times, there's a silver lining that a remarkable proportion of customer behaviour or behaviour amongst the public is habitual. So life is too complex to think everything through. You can either make speedy decisions by relying on these shortcuts we talked about earlier, or more extreme version is not even to think about the behaviour that you undertake, just to repeat the behaviour that you undertook in the last similar situation. That's essentially what psychologists call habit. Now, habits are a massive problem if you want to change people's behaviour, because how do you change someone's behaviour if they're not even weighing up the merits of the new thing you're trying to get them to do. They're just repeating unthinkingly what they've always done. The fact that we are going through a piece of environmental destabilisation, the fact that the economy will rock people's lives, many, many downsides to that. But from a behaviour change perspective, the one upside is it will disrupt some of those habits 
people will come off autopilot and at least consider ways of behaving they hadn't previously thought about. So I think there is a bit of a window of opportunity. If you want to change your behaviour, the next 18 months are probably particularly fertile. Yeah, so one big pit stop for the stuff we were talking about before, which, you know, under other circumstances, kind of people moving house or having a new kid. And now it's like everybody reevaluating everything because it's so complicated, which is probably exactly where you were getting to before, Chelsea. So, yeah, 2023 is the year for change. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And establishing those new habits. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you just you want marketers to know in this work that's critical for as they shape up their year? I think for us, kind of going back to the the, the models that we talked, we talked about East and mm. journeys. I think a really simple way to see this is how can we make consumer customer journeys work better to this end? And how can we figure out what's the right kind of aperture for messages about sustainability? Is it think differently about our brand? Is it buy different stuff from us? Is it use it differently? Is it dispose of it you know, differently? We can make this amazing canon of work digestible, practical, and all, all start working towards making a difference. And uh, yeah, I think it would also be a kind of great, a great way to integrate teams. Most organizations are now building out a client side, a sustainability team. They're not always super plugged in with marketing and I think this is a way for organizations to kind of come together to kind of crack some of those problems Richard it's probably fair to say that you run a lot of workshops with clients and you probably have diverse kind of team members kind of coming together on on, on this at least that's what we see that we can help this work can be a, a real focal point for for thinking about what to do about sustainability yeah. yes if you are running a workshop the behavioural science experiments, you can treat them as stimulus. So use the East framework as a four-pillared way of, of thinking. So how do you make the behaviour I want to encourage as easy as possible? Because I think what most marketers do is focus on how do we boost people's motivation to want to be more sustainable. What experiment after experiment after experiment in behavioural science shows is that actually removing small barriers is often more effective at changing behaviour than motivating people. To want to behave differently. Now, interestingly, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002, when he's asked what is the single biggest thing that he's learned from his hundreds upon hundreds of experiments, he always says, yeah, that's very simple. Three words, make it easy. So focusing on ease before anything else, I think, is a crucial approach on any campaign. Then think about make it attractive. I think we've touched on that a little bit, which is this idea of people on um, kind of rational evaluators of, of problems in many circumstances, often how an attractive an offering, its position is more important than a sense of kind of moral duty. So there's some lovely studies that Sean and I have looked at where if you want to encourage people to reduce their environmental footprint by giving up meat, or there are some lovely studies from people like um, Turnwald at Stanford, which show if you, people go to a restaurant and they see a menu which focuses on the, the healthiness of the vegetarian options, you get some sales. If you focus on how wonderful, technically tasty they are, you know, 40 odd percent more sales. So that idea of just because you want to encourage sustainable behavior because it's good for the planet, that doesn't have to be the message you lead with. Often the techniques we have as marketers at our disposal for other products about making something look attractive are probably more suitable. And then the final two pillars, make it social. It's not 
that people make decisions as individuals, they look around to what others are doing. So make the behaviour you want to encourage appear popular. And then finally, timeliness, which is this idea of the same message has a markedly different effect depending on when people hear it. So focus on your communications, reaching people at these moments of destabilisation. And if you use those four principles and associated experiments and biases as stimulus during your workshops, you'll be building on very solid foundations. You just hit upon, Rich, some of the some of the points that we that we tried to build into this work, which is to bring a sense of positivity and optimism to this, that actually an awful lot of the conversation around sustainability, quite rightly, is is quite gloomy. And actually, I think this behavioural kind of toolkit helps us to think differently about what can be done, what's possible, and to frame a lot of these changes in very, very positive terms. And I think what we're talking about here is is not scaring people into action, is to create positive reasons for change. And I think that's the overriding thing that comes out of this. This is a toolkit for positive change. I kind of think that's what we need to kind of get people on board and to kind of get people moving rather than being ostriches. More tactical question was, do we think that marketer briefs right now are are shaping for this work to be utilized? On occasions, but it's not mainstream. I think this stuff is rapidly going to become this stuff, you know, thinking about sustainable growth, you know, good for business, good for people, good for planet is going to become mainstream. I don't think it's in everyone's brief. What our ambition is, is to have our guys around the world able to help clients think about what a new brief might be and bring a solution to the conundrum between business as usual and pushing towards sustainability and actually the two things can kind of come together in a sort of you know good growth which I know has been kind of talked about quite a lot so I think it's not necessary it's on the fringes of some briefs I think we'll have done a good job over the next 12 months if for 2024 it's kind of written into the centre of more briefs. Practical, action-led kind of campaigns around sustainability can shine a really kind of positive equity halo on the brand as well as sustaining conversion in the right areas. Anyway, that's my kind of, that's my wish for 2023 from this. You already brought up 2024. So yeah, five years out, what would be your boldest prediction? You know, I think that we'll be working to a different kind of measurement framework where, you know, I guess, ESG factors, payoff for planet and society are kind of built into everyday measurement frameworks. And I think by that point in time, we will have proved that doing good, pushing more sustainable messages, changing behavior is kind of good for the brand, good for market share, that actually, you know, positive things tend to be cyclical. We'd have shown that those that leaned in early to start changing behavior will kind of reap the benefits in terms of kind of broader business growth. So five years' time, different measurement framework, this kind of work will be built into the mainstream. Richard, what is your five-year prediction? Well, hopefully in, in, in five years, I think we'll spend more time looking at long-term experiments in, in, into human behaviour. I think at the moment, marketing is far too focused on the latest new shiny thing, whereas actually one of the main themes of behavioural science is the motivators of people are remarkably consistent. So studies in 1890 or 1933 or 1962 tend to be just as accurate now as they were then. So I'm hoping in a few years' time, we'll spend more time looking back at established insights into human nature rather than 
fixating on what is happening at the at the cutting edge. Are we ready for the lightning round? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for lightning. All right. Favorite digital experience. I'm enjoying the Duolingo app at the moment. I'm reviving my Italian and it's really good. Okay. There you go. A bit of self-improvement. Uh, for me, Spotify. Not the newest of things, but it's the one that has the biggest effect on my life. But the amount of different genres I now listen to is ridiculous compared to how I used to be just fixated on one tiny uh, type of music. So yeah, Spotify by far. Fair. Best piece of content recently consumed? I'm enjoying Stanley Tucci's CNN show, Searching for Italy. It kind of ties in with the Duolingo app. <laughs> yeah, you got a theme going. You got a theme no. going on right now. I wait and bond with my daughter currently. She's a teenager, doesn't necessarily want to spend much time with her parents, but she loves horror movies. So I'm working my way through pretty much the last 30 years of horror movies with her. And I think It Follows and Get Out, the two best horror movies I've seen in the last month or two. I could see Get Out being your one of your favorites. I could see that. Uh, get out, I thought Get of... Out was actually phenomenal. It Follows as well. I thought was was close. Yeah. 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 Favorite creator or biggest inspiration? I love going to galleries, actually. I've had a massive kind of drive to kind of get into the city and go and look at art, modern and less modern. I just find it really interesting to try and understand what the thought process was, particularly behind abstract stuff, you know, what made them think of that. So, yeah, I thought I'd give a non-digital answer, hanging out in galleries, trying to figure it out. There's an amazing amount of great books that are written on paper science. I think probably the best is uh, Influenced by Robert Cialdini, so... 40 years old, but absolute classic. So well worth a read. Best career advice given or received? Well, I think for me, various bosses who've said, don't try and do it all. It's a team game. And I think what we do is becoming more and more a team game. I set up my company about four or five years ago. And I think the single best bit of advice I got before I did that, which I'm very glad that I took on board, was to diversify. Someone said, like, if you set up your own and you do one thing, you're going to have these spikes and troughs of income and it's quite stressful so I was originally thinking just doing consultancy but I spread my risk by doing training as well as consultancy and I think when COVID hit I was very very grateful I didn't just have one stream I could pivot to doing something slightly different so I think yeah if you're if you're working for yourself diversification is key. One hope for 2023? What I really hope is that we we can make some progress in making the stuff that we're talking about here more mainstream in 2023. So I'm hoping for one or two big wins where we kind of get some clients on board to do some kind of great behavior-changing work. Love it. I think mine would be, for marketing, less acceptance of the headlines and more digging into the underlying analysis. Because I think an awful lot of the things that we believe aren't actually backed up by the supposed supporting evidence. So things like the trust in advertising being crisis, you know, no evidence for it, yeah, it just keeps on being repeated again and again and again. So I'd like to see a greater focus on what the evidence actually says rather than what the headline says. Thing people should know about you, but they don't. So here's one. I left school when I was 16, and it sort of sprang to mind because within our early careers intake uh, now in the UK, we're, you know, we're kind of taking on an increasing number of people who didn't go to university. So, you know, it wasn't the best people at school. Left school when I was 16. There you go. That's my confession. I love that. I love that. And a good plug to the media experience for Densu because we do have yeah. a program. But that, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, exactly. 
And often the most insightful people are kind of, you know, kids that kind of come in without the formal kind of training and stuff and just kind of tell it how it is as they see it. So back to kind of Richard's point, you know, bearers of evidence. The thing that people don't know that I wish they did is I have a new book coming out in March 2023. So it's called The Illusion of Choice. Yeah, we do now. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're oh. the sponsors now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> As a personal consumer, do you spot all the biases now and just can't buy anything or you get fooled? <laughs> I think the one that I fall for is using the assumption that if it costs more, it must be better quality. Now, I know there are loads of studies which show that uh, often fools people. Marketers know that if they pump up the price, it will make me think it's better quality. I fall for social proof all the time. I just find that when I'm buying stuff or choosing stuff, I'm always in such a rush. And I know that I default to whether it's like reviews for kind of books on Amazon or, you know, that kind of stuff. And and then I kind of realize I've made the decision based upon that kind of recommendation. And I just, yeah. think, oh, I could have thought it through better, but, you know, it's just such a shortcut. So I'm a, yeah. I'm a living, I'm living proof of ratings and recommendations (laughs) i actually support that i haven't watched a movie under rotten tomato rating of 50 percent in years also like my husband won't allow it in the house he's like nope the world doesn't accept it as 50 percent or plus we can't watch it there's a lovely set of studies from northwestern university so they looked at 110,000 plus product reviews as the reviews get better people become more likely to buy but for every category there was a point at which the likelihood to purchase peaked. And then if the reviews got any better, likelihood to purchase declined. And their argument was perfection just isn't believable. If someone sees a five-star review, they think what's more likely this thing's actually perfect or someone's been, you know, fudging the reviews. That's fair. I do look at one-star reviews and I see if I can handle the one-star. So it depends on what they're complaining about. Yeah, 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 yeah. If if their objection isn't the same as yours, yeah. Well, Richard and Sean, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. This was an amazing episode and we hope to have you back very, very soon. Thank you. Cheers, Chelsea. Great. Okay. Thanks, Chelsea. And thank you again for listening to another episode of The Human Element. You can find us anywhere you can find your pods. Give us a like, subscribe, or even send us a note. We'll be back out to you real soon. And in the meantime, be well.